A burglar got into our house one night, flashing his light, he heard the words, Jesus is watching you. It sort of spooked him and a moment later he went back to shining his flashlight and he heard for a second time, Jesus is watching you. He now directs the flashlight and there is a, a parrot. And he interacted with the parrot and found out that it was the parrot who said the statement, Jesus is watching you. Therefore, the burglar, kind of stunned now, says, uh, what do you mean by that? What, what's your name? And the parrot said, my name is Moses. The burglar stopped and thought and he said, that's a crazy name. What kind of stupid people would name a parrot Moses. The parrot says, um, I don't know. I assume the same kind of people that would name their Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is watching you. We now are in Revelation chapter 5, and our chapter is all about Jesus. There is a unit that uh, takes place from chapters 4 and 5. In the beginning of Revelation 4, John is transported to heaven. Although on the Isle of Patmos, he's going to be given a tour of what happens in heaven just before the tribulation. There we saw God the Father sitting on the throne. He is the one who is ruling in the right hand of God is a book, and we'll learn more about that book and who takes the book out of the Father's hand today in Revelation chapter 5. So, let me go ahead and read to you Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on a throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation." And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy of the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Join me in prayer. Father, back in Revelation 4, we learned much about the greatness of God. Just prior to the tribulation, he will be on the throne. And the host of heaven will worship him, acknowledging that he is worthy. And because he has created all people, he has the right to judge them. Today, as we transition to the Son and focus on his role, may we have a great awe, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have four dramatic scenes in Revelation chapter 5, all introduced by two Greek words, chi Adon. Now here's the good news for the English uh, reader. All four times the words are translated differently. Well, that's helpful. Don't worry, I'll show you each time we come upon those words. Uh, we'll see them first in verse 1, and then in verse 2, again in verse 6, and then finally in verse 11. But again, each introducing a dramatic scene. We begin in verse 1, and I... Saw. Notice here the words Kai Adon and I saw. First dramatic scene. And what do we have? We have him, God, who is sitting on the throne and he has a scroll written inside and on the back. Clearly, it's God the Father. We saw him back in chapter. Jesus is the one we'll see in this chapter that is standing who comes to the Father. God's on the throne. It means he has the right to rule and is ruling. But I'd like to point out to you that God is a spirit. That's what we learn in John 4 in verse 24. And those who worship him, how do we worship him? In spirit and in truth. But now we have the description of the father sitting on the throne, but with a book where? In his right hand. This is what we call an anthropomorphism, where you have human attributes attributed to God. In other words, there is a description here so we can understand what is going on. And we have sitting on the throne God, in his right hand, the side of power, he's holding or grasping a scroll. Actually, it's a biblion is the Greek word here. Now, this is not a book, a codex. It's not as if you flip 
the pages. Uh, that did not come into existence until after John's day, perhaps 50, 100 years later. This is a scroll. You would roll it out. Recall in uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue there in Nazareth and they hand him the scroll, but they roll it out. That's the idea that is here. This is a unique scroll because it's written inside and on the back. That was very unusual in the first century. It's what we call an epistograph, writing on the front and the back, and then we learn it's sealed with how many seals? Seven. The common practice was to seal a scroll by wax or clay, and an impression would be made from the king's signet ring showing that only someone of royal authority could loose or open the seven seals. And when the seven seals would be opened, then you would see the entire document. Now, the book of Revelation is different because it seems that when you unfasten one of the seals and only that section of the book is shown. And that is what we have here. Now we transition to our second dramatic scene, beginning in verse 2, and it goes through to verse 5. Then I saw. And what is it that John sees? A strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. We have three references in the book of Revelation to a strong angel. And the word here strong means active power. Right here in chapter 5 and verse 2. And then we'll see it again in chapter 10 where there's an angel who comes from heaven reflecting the glory of God. And then over in Revelation 18 and verse 21, there is a strong angel that picks up a millstone weighing tons and hurls it into the sea. The reason that this is a strong angel is that when he speaks, all the universe hears what he has to say. And there is a question that the universe hears. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Observe the word worthy. And let me introduce a term to you, by the way, today. It's uh, from the German. It's a light wort. L-E-I-T-W-O-R-T. A light wort means a key word. Worthy is a key word. I'll give you an example of this. Back in Genesis 1, with the days of creation, God steps back and says it's Tov, the Hebrew word which means good. And then after the sixth day, he says it's Tov Ma'oth. It is very good. Key word. Key word. Jesus would often introduce an important statement by repeating himself, right? Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen is the idea of amen, amen, or so be it. There's something important to be said. Here, it's the word worthy. Now, if I turn around and say to you, okay, how many times does the word worthy appear in the book of Revelation? Uh, you would just spontaneously say, that's right, seven, seven. Now, if I were to ask you how many times that word is used in the entire New Testament, and if someone said 41, then I'd just go sit down and let you teach. <laughs> okay, seven times. But here is the connection. Here is the key word. 
in Revelation chapter 4, down in verse 11, when those around the throne acknowledge who the Father is, they say, you are worthy. So God's worthy. But now, as we come into chapter 5, and we see the word in verse 9, that Jesus is worthy. Clearly, the Son is of the same level as the Father, eternally God, and acknowledged as such. So worthy is our light word, or key word, for our study today. So, the question is asked, who is worthy? And here comes the response, the answer down in verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open a scroll or to look at it. Observe the words was able. If you think of an arrow pointing backward continually, that's the idea of the imperfect tense. Continuous action in past time. That is what is being shown here. That when you go back through all of eternity, there is no one worthy in three places. One, we will see heaven. Two, on earth. And in number three, under the earth. He starts with the greatest and then works down to the bottom of the ladder, if you will. So no one in heaven, no saint there. How about on the earth? No one there. How about any demon in hell, if you will? Also, no one there is worthy to do the unlatching of this scroll, the threefold division. Very intriguing here. And how is John moved when he sees the sinfulness of the world? Because that's what we see. No one's worthy. So I wept much. Kaiego, a Kion, Palu. The idea here, I, I myself. John is moved. Now, John is a godly man. He has walked with God for decades. He, he's a man who had walked with God for a long period of time, is now banished to the Isle of Patmos, and he's confronted with his own sinfulness. That's what the passage is showing us. So what is his response when he is broken here? It says he weeps much. He cries a lot. And now the cause of the crying is given. The word because, hati from the Greek, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. The reality of the sinfulness of mankind hits John. It's the idea of Romans chapter 3 that there are none righteous, no, not one. And I think we need to step back and, and look at mankind. I remember uh, years ago watching the movie Boys Town. It was set in the 30s and you had Father Flanagan, the hero of uh, the movie. And Father Flanagan had a famous statement that there is no such thing as a bad boy. Well, that conflicts with what King David says in Psalm 51, 5, 
that we're all brought forth in sin. That conflicts with the clear teaching of the word of God that there are are none righteous, no, not one. It conflicts with for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we see that we have no one that is worthy here and John gets it. And in the midst of his weeping, he's interrupted. Notice here in verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, remember the elders representing the church, we'll talk more about that soon, do not weep. And here is the reason, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now notice the words has prevailed. In the Greek text, it appears right after the word, behold. It is giving special emphasis to Christ's victory. Jesus is an overcomer. That's the meaning of the words, has prevailed. We saw this in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? See the word overcome? See, the victor, the idea of the Nike slogan, Nikkei, from the Greek back in 1 John chapter 5, means an overcomer, somebody that's victorious. We are overcomers through faith in Christ. Jesus is the great overcomer here. And he is identified very specifically. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The terminology takes us back to Genesis 49, where there, there's a prediction that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. That's Genesis 49 and verse 10. And by the way, one of the things that moved me decades ago to really put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior was Bible prophecy. And even starting the book of Genesis, as early as 3.15, there is a prediction about a virgin birth. And then you couple that with Galatians 4.4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. See, that's the idea of the virgin birth. And that's who... Jesus Christ is. He is the one who is born of a virgin. He does not carry a sin nature like all those who are brought forth in sin because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But that's Genesis 3.15. And then you spring forward to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God says to Abram, later named Abraham, I will bless those that bless thee and I will curse him who curses you and in you Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed the Messiah comes from the line of Abraham Galatians 3 8 brings this together wow and then you get to chapter 49 verse 10 and that the Messiah would come specifically from the tribe of Judah and then it goes on the root of David Let me read you Robert Thomas's quote. Here, root refers to what springs from and therefore represents a root. It is a metaphorical term for offspring. 
John's fondness for this title accounts for his use of it again in Revelation 22 and verse 16. The full title derives from Isaiah 11, 1 and 10 and describes Christ's headship in the final Davidic kingdom. Romans 15, 12, another verse making this connection. Paul writes, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Remember what I brought you to Genesis 12, 3? That in the line of Abraham would come the Messiah from whom all the families of the earth, see that's the Gentiles, would be blessed. And that's what Paul is pointing out here through the Messiah in Romans 15 in verse 12. Transition with me now to the third suspenseful scene. It begins in verse 6 and goes through to verse 10. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Here the word for lamb is arneon, which means a little lamb. But what's the posture of the lamb? He's standing. It's the position of victory because he had been slain and came back to life. When you think of lamb, you have to think about John one twenty nine. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He is the lamb who had been slain, but now is alive and he is standing and he's described as having seven horns. Biblically speaking, a horn represents power. Seven shows complete power. He is all powerful. Not only is he all powerful, but it says, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And seven eyes. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is omniscient. And imagine this. Jesus Christ is the one who dispatched the Spirit into the world. He told his disciples, I need to go to heaven so I can send the Spirit to you. The Spirit is equally God, but yet Jesus Christ, in the economy of the Trinity, sends the Spirit of God. It's what we call the doctrine of procession. So who is Christ? He is eternally God. As the Father had sent Him, now He had sent the Holy Spirit. He is the one that we will see is worthy. And focus now on verse 7 with these tremendous words. Then He... See the Lamb, Jesus, came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Imagine, he, he takes the scroll from the right hand. See the side of power of God. The word took here is in a perfect tense. There's been a completed action in the past and the results continue. Perhaps this is an intensive perfect. The concept being, since Jesus will judge all people, he takes the scroll and perpetually holds on to the scroll. Because that's what we learn in John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, 
but has committed all judgment to the Son. It will be from this scroll that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls Judgments occur on the earth. Amazing. Jesus Christ is the worthy one who snatches the scroll from the Father's hand. He has to be God because no one else was found worthy to do this. Would a simple created being have the authority to do this? And I present no. But the eternal Son of God has the right to take the scroll And now, down in verse 8, as we observe the worship that transpires in heaven. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp. And having a harp here seems to point back to the elders. They are the ones here, I think, that are being addressed as having the harp. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As we work through the book of Revelation in chapter 6 and chapter 8, we're going to see that those that have been slain during this period of time are described even as under the altar really saying, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? So we have that coupled here because the judgment is coming. Now these 24 elders worship with a song. Look at verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, that's the 24 elders, a new song, a new song. Back in Psalm 40 verse 3, David says that he had put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God. Many shall see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. There's a new song because there's a sense of delivery. There's a sense of victory that is transpiring here. So they have much to sing about. And notice here, you are worthy to take the scroll. The first word in the song is worthy, which summarizes the entire song and equates the son's worthiness, chapter 5, with that of the father, back in chapter 4 in verse 11. He is worthy. And to open its seals, and see, this will be the official start of the tribulation, and we'll get into that in chapter 6, Lord willing. And here's the reason for you were slain. The past tense verb, the error, shows it was a once and for all act. And have redeemed, and you might want to circle, underline, highlight the word us, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. I love the word us here. It refers to the 24 elders who represent the church. The angels are not redeemed. Christ did not die for them. This is not referring to the Old Testament saints because they're not even resurrected until after the tribulation. It is speaking about the church age saints that have been raptured and are now in the presence of of God, and they are acknowledging what has happened for them and have redeemed us to buy out of the marketplace. Christ shed his blood in order to save our souls. That is who the us 
refers to. That is so very important theologically. We do not go through the tribulation period, but we will celebrate our time with Christ in heaven in the seven years that he is pouring out his judgments on the earth. Redeemed us. Who are the ones redeemed? It says, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We all come from one blood. And when Christ shed his blood, he died for all people. And you will have individuals from around the globe who have believed on Christ. And they are celebrating now in the presence of God that they have been redeemed. And then we even go and see about our future role. Verse 10, have made us kings. Uh, a kingdom perhaps is the idea from the majority text and priests to our God. We will have a prominent future role in Christ's millennial kingdom. That is what he has done for us. We're redeemed. We're now going to be in the presence of God forever and we will get to serve him in that kingdom in a great and a significant way. Now for the final electrifying scene beginning in verse 11 carrying us through the end of the chapter in verse 14. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Now notice that the angels are distinguished from the elders. Some people believe that the 24 elders refer to angels, but there's a distinction made here. Then it talks about the living creatures. We saw them back in chapter 4, 6, 8, and 9, and then also in chapter 5 and verse 6. And the elders, this is part of heaven's praise team, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. The idea of 100 million. Myriads can also give the indication of an innumerable host. You can't count them because there are so many. And what are they saying in verse 12 with a loud voice? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The acknowledgement of Jesus Christ being again worthy. He should be forever praised and will be and to bring together this whole idea of Christ's worthiness you have a sevenfold description of the attributes the perfections of the lamb again the number seven showing completeness of fullness it says in verse 12 to receive power dunamin from dunamis here we get our english term dynamite not an explosion but it refers to ability and here we see that christ has omnipotent power he rules over all and he can do what he chooses to do because he's sovereignly god so he's worthy to receive power and riches he's the one who possesses all spiritual and material wealth. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the one who imparts to the church, according to the book of Ephesians, these great, great riches of mercy, grace, and on and on. Number three, we have him as being wise and wisdom. With wisdom, he governs the universe. Imagine managing the entire universe, the seven billion people on planet earth he in his wisdom manages it all it's all upheld by the word of his power and then strength 
which speaks here of ability or, or the concept of strength. And honor. The name Timothy, Timotheos, honoring or valuing God. This is the word to honor. Jesus is worthy of our honor. We should value him above all else. And then glory here, which means brightness or splendor or radiance. And then finally, blessing. Our Lord loves to bless. In Romans 9, 5, Jesus is eternally blessed. And guess what he likes to do as a result of his nature? Bless us. And now down in verse 13, and every creature, and notice the division here, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne. That's to the father and to the lamb. You see the equality there. How long? Forever and ever I like to remind people, you can now give the acknowledgement to the Son that he deserves. Philippians chapter 2 tells us there's going to come a day where every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. It is so much better to do it now and put your faith in him than wait to one day where you are forced to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is. And finally, now down in verse 14. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. The word said is in the imperfect tense. They kept on saying, Amen. So be it, is the idea here. They are so enamored with Jesus Christ that all they can do is say, Amen. Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Such a key concept to worship God, but also to worship the Son of God who is equally God. The word worship, proskuneo, appears 60 times in the New Testament from the Greek. And we're not only to worship the Father, but very clearly, even according to Hebrews 1.8, we are to worship the son, to kiss toward. The idea perhaps is falling down before him and throwing kisses. This is who Jesus Christ is, the eternal son of God. And we are to acknowledge that he is worthy. Let me share with you now the main point from Revelation chapter 5. Regularly, you might want to note that word regularly, Worship the earth's judge and our worthy redeemer. Let me say that again. Regularly worship the earth's judge and our worthy redeemer. On a daily basis, child of God, you are to get into the presence of the Holy One and worship him. You have been created to bring glory to God to walk with him. You are designed in order to bring praises to him regularly. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the earth's judge. There will come a day when all people 
in different contexts, if you will. Some at the great white throne judgment, those who don't know Jesus Christ, will stand before him, Revelation 20. Then you have us, the church age. When the rapture occurs, we stand before him to receive our rewards. That's why John says, and now little children abide in him, that when he appears, we might have confidence and not be ashamed before him it is coming, 1 John 2, 28. So important that we regularly worship the earth's judge and also our worthy redeemer. And it also means in the context of the church. Hebrews 10 and 25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We are to gather regularly and worship our Redeemer and the earth's judge. We must make a priority in our lives personally and then corporately through the church of Jesus Christ to worship the one who is worthy. And by the way, we will continue to do that forever and ever and ever. So why not put it into practice now? Individually, how are you doing with your devotions? How are you doing with giving worship to the one who is worthy, both Father and Son, privately before Him? How are you doing with making church and Bible study and prayer meeting a priority that you come and gather before the one with the other saints to acknowledge our judge and our Redeemer and to worship Him. I pray that we would do those two things so one day when we stand before Him, we will not be ashamed that we wasted our lives and the time that You've given to us. Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart full of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank You because You are worthy the one who sits on the throne. I thank you, Son, because you are worthy as our judge and our redeemer. And I pray that all of us would prioritize you in our lives. As Paul pens in Colossians 1.18, that in all things, Christ may have the preeminence. May he be first in our lives, in our worship, in our service. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.